Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Will Putin's invasion of Ukraine ultimately help or hurt President Biden's political standing at home? I knew there had been research done. I knew someone must have taken a look at the the interconnectedness of war and presidential political standing in the United States. And I will tell you, it cuts both ways. There have been circumstances where the United States finds itself in a threatening situation and we rally around the flag. What I'm really wondering is whether those days are over. There have been other instances where things don't go so well and it turns against the first Gulf War, politically speaking, much to the advantage of George Herbert Walker Bush, the failed attempt to rescue the Iranian hostages boded poorly for Jimmy Carter headed into the 1980 election. So we'll talk about the politics of this in the second hour after we talk about the substance in hour one. There's a front page story today about President Zelensky, an untested president, steps up to rally his people in wartime. I have to say that the more I see of this guy, the more I'm impressed. He appeared on Ukrainian television early on Thursday morning as the threat of war was pressing down. First, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine addressed the 44 million citizens of Ukraine. Then... He turned to the 144 million Russians living next door and beseeched them to prevent an attack that evoked the darkest eras in Europe since World War II. Quote, listen to the voice of reason, Zelensky said after midnight Thursday in Kiev, the Ukrainian people want peace. When he appealed directly, I'm skipping ahead to the store in the story, to the Russian people switching languages to Russian. He referred to them as neighbors and family, even as he acknowledged differences in admitting they would probably never even hear his words, given the Kremlin's tight grip on the Russian news media. I'd be playing the audio for you, except it's in Russian, but you can watch it on my Facebook page. And I'm curious to know whether thus far he's as impressive to you as he is to me. Of course, there's no telling how long he's going to last in office or Physically, I mean, he says that Putin now has identified him as target number one and his family as target number two. 
So I, I did something as I was watching all of this unfold last night that I found to be valuable. I went back to remind myself, remember, I mean, this is the guy, Zelensky, who because of the Russian threat, desperately wanted what? He wanted aid from the United States. Yes, ultimately, after it had been held up by Trump, ultimately he got it. It was $400 million at issue. And he also wanted a meeting with Trump. He desperately wanted a meeting, a show of strength, because he had just been elected in a parliamentary election by a landslide. And, and to now see what's unfolding with Putin and to wind the clock back to 2019, July uh, 25th of 2019, and know what we know about that telephone call, it just puts it to me in a, in a whole new light, the, the sense of desperation of Zelensky being held up for a political objective by the American president. And I, I just, you know, I not only went back and I read the unclassified released transcript of the call, including Trump saying to him, the other thing, this is a direct quote, the other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution. And a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, it just sounds horrible to me. And after Zelensky essentially says he'll take a look, then the president's, oh, that's thank you very much. And hey, I'd like to meet you and yada, yada, yada. Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, of course, was sitting in a situation room down below at the White House listening in on this. And when the call ended, I mean, his his station in life at the time is that he was a 44 year old army lieutenant colonel. He'd been assigned to the National Security Council. He'd been, by the way, born in the Soviet Union. And his role on that day had been or in advance of that call to provide talking points for the president. And he knew as he listened in immediately that Trump had gone off script. When Vinman a few weeks, no, a few months ago was a guest of mine here, I asked him to sort of recreate what that was all about. I've always been intrigued by the fact that you are in the situation room. Were you at the same table that President Obama was commanding the, uh, you know, the, the raid uh, at Abbottabad? Because I always was led to believe that that was the smaller of the two rooms. And from your book, I get the impression that's the room you were in as well. That's exactly right. I was, I was in the smaller of two rooms uh, sitting, I guess, uh, you know, what would have been catty corner to where uh, President, uh, where, where actually Secretary of State uh, Clinton was sitting? If you recall that picture, yep, you, know, you had at the head of the table. Sure. Yeah, you, yeah, you had uh, um, you know President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and then I was sitting right at that corner over there. And, and but I sat in the same seat that uh, the president had sat in on multiple occasions, which is a pretty awesome place to be. He he knew you were listening, or that others were listening, right? Uh, I frankly don't think so. I don't believe that's uh, – I'd like to say now that the president knew no more on his last day in office than he knew on his first day in office. Um, he, he was not a learning personality. So I don't believe he actually knew that there were you know other people on the phone call necessarily. Okay. Vinman wrote in his book, the president's tone was detached, unfriendly. His voice was lower and deeper than usual, as if he was having a bad morning. He wasn't in the room with us. 
He was taking the call in their residence, but that wasn't unusual for him. He was routinely unavailable and certainly not present in the Oval Office until late morning or early afternoon. Zelensky is a comedian by profession. He was telling self-deprecating jokes, making fun of his own poll numbers and saying that he had to win more elections to speak regularly with President Trump. And then it goes on and on and on. Zelensky says, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, Vindman says that he notes quickly that the president wasn't using my talking points at all. He may, may never have even seen them. At a certain point in the conversation, Zelensky, the incoming brand new Ukrainian president, says, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States, referring to the U.S. made infra-guided anti-tank weapon, the Javelin, which could be used against Soviet armored vehicles. Now, by the way, day two, we see why he desperately wanted them. Trump's response without, quote, missing a beat. I would like you to do us a favor, though. Vindman writes, I paused in my note taking. And it goes on from there. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking as I'm watching Zelensky and as I'm watching this situation unfold in Ukraine I can't help but think about some of the politics of it here in the United States and and the whole split screen that I'm getting on Fox where, you know, there there are opinion hosts who are seemingly more critical of Biden than they are of Putin. This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. 
Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors over 37,000 companies have already made the move so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Joshua Tucker is a professor of politics at New York University. He's director of NYU's Jordan Center of Advanced Study of Russia and a co-director of the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics, perhaps most important on his CV. He is a former classmate of TC at an unnamed institution in Boston. Hi, Professor. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. On a different day, you'll come back and tell TC stories, right? Oh, Absolutely. So what's the answer to the why question? I I keep reading and hearing from individuals with your expertise that Putin seeks to reconstitute the Soviet Union and or provide a buffer against a growing list of NATO states that now include former Soviet bloc nations. What's your answer? Right. So I think that's obviously one of the answers, and that's the one he's been most vocal about. But I think we can think about this at a high level of there being potentially two different pathways we want to think about here. One pathway is exactly what Putin is saying publicly, and it's this story that you've said you've been hearing over and over again, that this is about the security of Russia and that Russia's security is being threatened by NATO, which, according to Russia, is essentially a a hostile uh, military alliance that's aligned against Russia and has been encroaching towards Russia's borders. And that this was something that was imposed during the the, the post-Cold War era when Russia was weak. Russia is now strong and Russia seeks to revise it. That's one story. However, there's a totally different way of looking at this, which is to say that the threat from Ukraine to Russia or to put more precisely, the threat from Ukraine to Putin's regime in Russia is not about joining NATO so much as it is about joining the European Union. And what I mean by that is that Putin has made choices since he came to power to put Russia on a much more autocratic path. Originally, we called it a competitive authoritarian regime. Now, I think most political scientists would call it a full-blown authoritarian regime. We've seen increasing repression over the last decade, over the last couple of years, and we undoubtedly will see much more repression in the aftermath of this invasion as we see uh, as we see protests spread across Russia. From this perspective, what's threatening about Ukraine is it's an alternative model to the Russian people of an alternative direction that Russia could have gone, which was a true, a real democratic system that's oriented towards Western openness and Western uh, models of governance. So by that logic, by the way, Dr. Stoner from Stanford was here yesterday 
saying kind of the same thing, that he can't afford to have the Russians be able to look uh, you know, over the fence, so to speak, and look at a successful model in Ukraine because he worries that his countrymen will want to go the same direction. Do I understand you correctly? Exactly. And I think this goes back to, you know, you saw this for the first time in 2004 when you had the colored revolution in Ukraine. But that was quickly uh, there was no Russian interference at that point in time. And eventually that government was voted out of power, replaced by a more pro-Russian facing government in Ukraine. Then in 2014, when you had the Euromaidan uh, or the Revolution of Dignity and you had Yanukovych thrown out, of Ukraine and replaced uh, in the country, we know Russia responded by annexing Crimea, by having support for the separatists in the south and east part of the country. But they did a weird thing at that point in time, which is by annexing Ukraine, they took the part of the country that was most reliably pro-Russian out of the country, so they would never vote in Ukrainian elections again. And on top of that, they alienated large portions of the Ukrainian population. It was as if you were thinking about the future of the Republican Party in the United States if Texas suddenly declared independence. It would make it much harder for Republicans to win national elections. And so in a weird way, the Russians kind of shot themselves in the foot because previously Ukraine, with its democracy, was throwing governments out left and right because Ukraine, like Russia, has problems with corruption and the people were often dissatisfied with governments. But once you had the annexation of Crimea, it made it much harder for pro-Russian forces to ever legitimately win an election in, U- in Ukraine. So, yes, now you have this situation where the Russian people can look to Ukraine and they can see, again, an alternative model. So much like Professor Stoner said, and that alternative model is threatening to Putin's regime because, it, you know, from this perspective, what was most threatening about what happened in Euromaidan Uh, to Russia was that democracy in Ukraine could continue to function. And so from this perspective, you look at this and saying, you know, from that moment, the goal of, you know, what was what was threatening to Putin was the successful manifestation of Russian of Ukrainian democracy. And with the election of Zelensky, this kind of outsider candidate who gets a large portion of the vote, who kind of overthrows the ruling, you know, replaces the traditional ruling elite in Russia, that becomes even more acute. So from that perspective, When you ask the question of why now and what's going on right now, it points a mirror to changes in Russian domestic politics. You know, long-term implications of sanctions being imposed in 2015. The Russian economy has probably, you know, has probably lost a percentage or two of economic growth for the last seven years or eight years. That adds up over time, right? And Russian people, there's a lot of things that Russians are dissatisfied with in their own country. And so you wonder here if combining those two things, what this is, is Putin trying to recapture the glory days of the annexation of Crimea when his approval ratings went sky high. If your analysis is right, it sounds to me like there's no off-ramp for Putin shy of getting control of all of Ukraine. I mean, like all autocrats, Putin is first and foremost ultimately going to be concerned with his own survival. Um, So, yes, I think you're right. There doesn't seem to be, if this take on it. And I don't know if I'm right. You asked me to present an alternative, you know, an alternative explanation to what was you were hearing over and over again in the sort of mainstream here. And if that explanation is correct, yes, it suggests that the end goal of this is really to replace the Zelensky regime and try to engineer regime change inside of Ukraine. Um, you know, it, it again, as I said a moment ago, Autocrats are concerned about their own survival at the end of the day. So if we are looking for what is going to slow him down, what is going to make him pause in terms of uh, continuing on with this kind of behavior in the future, 
the question becomes is sort of in a weird way is how painful is this for Putin to go forward with this military, you know, victory that he so desires right now. And I think you have to think of that in, in terms of him having two constituencies. One is the Russian people, which is who we normally think of as a constituency in a democracy, slightly less important in the Russian case because the elections are not free, they're not fair. Uh, but you all autocrats need some support from their mass population. And when your population turns against you, that makes it much, much more difficult for autocrats to rule. They have to reply, rely on more uh, repression. The other group is the power elite around Putin, the people he has empowered who in turn keep him in power. And that's why you see these sanctions trying to sort of target both Putin's popularity with his whole country, but also going directly after the elites around him. I have a question that taps into something you just said and also your expertise relative to social media. I watched translated, but I watched the speech that President Zelensky delivered to the Russian people. I thought it was very compelling. And then I wondered how many Russians will actually get to see it or at least hear about it. What's the state of social media in Russia? And will people get that word? Yeah, so Russia is not uh, China yet in terms of its actual control of information flows. Uh, when we think about ways that, uh, that um, authoritarian regimes respond to online opposition, uh, we can think about sort of three broad categories. Responding offline by arresting people, changing legal rules, responding online by restricting access to information, and responding online by trying to change the tenor of the conversation. That's, think of your bots and your trolls going out there and, you know, impacting what's being said on social media. China has been the sort of pioneer with the traditional censorship of restricting access to information. Russia, on the other hand, has been more sort of creative and innovative or the Chinese have been pretty creative and innovative, too, but has been more focused traditionally on sort of changing the conversation online, although that's changing in recent times. So the short answer to your question is Russians certainly won't see it on TV, but those who want to find it online will be able to find it online by accessing YouTube, by accessing other Internet sites, by accessing even the sort of independent Russian media channels, some of which unfortunately have had to flee the country, um, but they won't. But people who are relying on news by just sort of going to, you know, traditional Russian media websites, going to traditional, you know, uh, Russian television, which is still a large portion of the population, they will not get the same message that people who go to these other sources will. And finally, a naive question. Have you entertained the thought that Putin has gone mad? Because with my Western <laughs> bias, I look at these events and I say, what possible upside could offset all the risks he's now taken on? You know, as a political scientist, you, the, the, the sort of refuge of, of has the person gone mad is kind of saying, you know, have our, you know, can our models absolutely not explain this? Is it all in the error term? And, you know, we're just sort of off any explanation for what's going on. So that's kind of my last refuge. I mean, I gave up trying to predict what was going on in, in Putin's head years ago. It's a, it's a futile exercise. I think that from a rationalist perspective, I actually, a little bit of a contrarian on this, I think the seizure of the annexation of Crimea was a tremendous mistake that put Russia in, the, in, a, in a very bad direction. I think that um, the interference in the U.S. 2020 elections was also, you know, a terrible self-goal on Putin's part. 
Uh, he, you know, it probably had very little influence on anything in that election. He would have had the most pro-Russia president in Russia's history. He would have had the sanctions lifted. Instead, the only thing Democrats and Republicans could agree upon under the Trump administration was to ratchet up sanctions against Russia for interfering in our elections. And from my rational perspective, you know, he does have, as you say correctly, there are tremendous, tremendous negatives to this. So, Short of saying that Putin has gone, you know, short of trying to speculate about Putin's mental state, I think we can say two things. One, it's been clear for decades now that Putin sees the dissolution of the Soviet Union as a tragedy. He He has famously referred to this as the worst geopolitical event tragedy of the 20th century, and a lot of bad things happened in the 20th century. So that's a strong statement. This is someone who comes from the KGB. And he has been clear for many, many years that he thinks the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, is problematic. The second thing we know is that autocrats um, surround, you know, the autocrats surround themselves with people whose careers are dependent on pleasing the autocrat. And the longer you stay in power, the more that pattern reinforces itself. And this makes it hard to get high quality advice. Um, and then you saw, if you were looking at those speeches, you saw the Security Council meeting where he's having these crazy visuals of he has his security advisors, but they're like 100 feet away from him. It's like they're standing on different sides of a, of a football field. And by all accounts, Putin has been incredibly isolated during the pandemic. He has been, you know, tried to protect himself from catching COVID. And he has, you know, even more restricted the number of people who he comes in contact with. So it is very possible that Putin thinks he is being very strategic here, but that the strategy he's pursuing is based on a poor understanding of reality. Well, that was excellent. You lived up to your billing. By the way, TC, was he Lowell House? He was not Lowell House. He was Kirkland oh. House, where oh. Joey lived. Oh. Yes. Was he like this then? He was he so smart? Is a, a, a thousand percent Did and you also know? exceedingly good guy <laughs> wow. from the very beginning as at age 18. And now, my God, I'm sitting here listening and wishing he had been my professor, you know, way back when. Seriously good guy. Professor Tucker, that was excellent. Thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. And thanks for the kind words. I'm kind of blushing on radio. And uh, and uh, and thanks for having me on today. I'm happy to come back and talk more if you'd like in the future. Joshua Tucker is a professor of politics at NYU, New York University. He's the director of NYU's Jordan Center for Advanced Study of Russia and co-director of the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Again, watch the Zelensky speech that is on my Facebook page. It's closed captioned. It's easily understood. And for the reasons that I mentioned at the outset, I now look at Zelensky and that whole interaction with Trump. No, not playing. A, oh, Biden started. Oh, Trump started. It's just like it just puts that whole phone call in a different perspective for me. The Smirconish podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.